If you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to take them, open them up to the book of Ruth. The reason we're in Ruth this morning, and I just, I guess we'll stop next week. Um, Rick Eshbaugh, our district minister, will be here with us. The following week, um, the ministry of CR will have that morning. Um, they'll bring, you know, we'll hear some testimonies and and uh, I believe Dan will be bringing um, the message. Um, the last week of September, we were planning on having Larry Taunton up front with us uh, to bring the message. And then God willing, and our plans, the plans we've made, um, we'll have the first Sunday in September, Randall and Linda will be with us. So. That's where we're at for the next four weeks. We're in the book of Ruth because of the first line, the first sentence we see. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We've spent the summer in the book of Judges. And Ruth is a follow-up. Not a follow-up at the end, but it kind of gives us a glimpse into the life of a couple families as to what it was like during that time. We've seen the overview, we've seen the judges that have ruled, but here we see the life of an individual family. And there was a famine in the land. The only time in the book of Judges in which a famine is mentioned is around the time of Gideon. And so we'll make the assumption that Naomi and Elimelech are leaving before Gideon is called to be a judge. I'm not going to argue or fight over this, but that's the assumption I'm going on. And Naomi and Elimelech, I don't know how long they've been married. We don't know how long they've been together. Long enough to have two young boys. And there's a famine in the land. And they leave where they are from, which is Bethlehem. And in Hebrew, the word Bethlehem, anytime you see the, a word beginning with Beth or Bethel, just know that it means house of, and then it's up to you to find the Hebrew for what it's the house of. So Bethlehem most literally means house of bread. In Micah 5, verse 2, as, as the prophecy is made the, that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, it says, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. And to the best of our knowledge, Ephrathah would have been the Canaanite name for this place. Ephrathah meant fruitful. When Israel came in, they renamed it Bethlehem meaning house of bread. And so it's ironic that they leave the house of bread for the wilderness, the rocks, and the sand of Moab. They go east across the Jordan on the other side of the Dead Sea. And it says they went there to sojourn. They went there planning on a short stay until a famine passed and they could come back home. 
while they are there, life happens, and something happens to Elimelech, and he dies. Did he get sick? It's a violent time. Was he murdered? Was there an accident as he's working? We don't know. We just hear that he dies. And as more time passes, their sons grow to marry in age, and Naomi says, we need to find wives for these boys. And where are they at? They're in Moab. And so they find, Mo she finds and arranges for her sons to marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And somewhere along the line, before they are able to have children in those marriages, both sons die. Now imagine Naomi, this is a time and a place in history, and you know what? Some things haven't changed much in many parts of our world. A childless widow is among the most vulnerable, is among the most defenseless in this society, and you don't have to go very far and around our world to find that the same stands true even today. And the options are severely limited. And now what do they do and how do they provide for themselves? The opportunities for women to go into business were pretty scarce, pretty small. And the options are, well, what can we take into our home and do to get by? We rely on the kindness and generosity of others. Do we beg? And unfortunately, the reality of the situation was many would turn to prostitution to put food on the table. Those are the options before these three ladies. And somewhere along the line, Naomi hears word from home that the Lord is caring for his people, providing for the people, meeting them in the fields and providing. And so she decides to go home. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, you know what, I'm going back I thank you for your kindness, for your generosity to me as your mother-in-law. Your duty is done. You stay here. You go back to your families. You find husbands here. May the Lord bless you. May you find rest here. Rest meaning peace and blessing. And the one daughter-in-law, and I falter not at all, this is no I cast no aspersions on her character. She takes Naomi up on that. Says, I will stay. I'll go back to my family. However, the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, says, no, I'm staying with you. No, you don't want to do this. You stay here. And maybe Ruth had no family to go back to. Maybe there was nothing there for her. Or maybe the kindness and the generosity of her mother-in-law was such she felt indebted to her. She says, I'm going to go with you, and where you go, I will go, and where you live, I will live, and, where you, and the, your people will be my people. And here's the key word in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, the key phrase, and your God will be my God. It's at this point, I believe, that Ruth is seeing in her mother-in-law, perhaps for the first time, a, a commitment or a faith or a trust in this creator God. And she wants what her mother-in-law has. 
And so they make the long journey back from the, the wilderness and the rocks and the sand of Moab back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And as they arrive back in town, whoo, you know how it is? We live in a small community. Somebody returns, and the whole town's a Twitter. Naomi's back. Boy, she got old. <laughs> and I'm at that age in life. I see some of my classmates from high school and wonder how they age so poorly. I haven't asked them what they thought of me. It's safer not to know. Wow, Naomi's back. Woohoo! And they're all excited. And who is this with you? Well, this was my son's wife. And they're all excited. And she goes, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. If you remember in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and at one stop in the desert, they come to a, a spring-fed pool or, or pond, which they were to get their water from, and the water was bitter, and they called it the waters of Marabah, meaning the water is bitter. She says, call me Mara. And it's, it's interesting to note, she doesn't say it's because I am bitter. It's just because the Lord's hand has dealt bitterly against me. My life has been bitterly hard. You don't see bitterness in her you just see the bitterness of the circumstances surrounding her life. I went away full, and I come back empty. I went away with a husband and two sons, and now I come back with my daughter-in-law. No, it's no aspersion on Ruth. It's just life has been hard. And as they get settled in, and I'm sure that there was a place provided for them to live, I'm sure that there were some relatives that say, you can stay here, We'll try to help you get on your feet with your limited options. And it was the time of the, the harvest, the barley harvest. And so she sends her daughter-in-law out, Ruth, to go out. and says, you glean the edges of the field. They're supposed to leave the edges. God has instituted this to care for the poor and the needy and the destitute. And it, was a, it wasn't that we wait around for a handout. So we go out and we work hard and we, we get what is provided for us. We earn what is provided for us. And so Ruth goes out and begins working in a field and, and notices, well, this is kind of wrapped up and there's workers over here. So she gravitates towards this field. And as she's gathering along the edges, the owner of the field, a man named Boaz, arrives. And he greets his workers. He greets the people working in his field. The Lord bless you. And in return, they all responded, and the Lord bless you. And as they see the workers and he's taking account, you'd have the men out there, they'd be, cutting the, they'd be cutting the barley, and the women would be coming along and gathering it up and tying it into shocks or sheaves and standing up to help further the drying. And then the men would come behind and gather those up onto wagons and carry them to where they would be threshed. And as he's noticing, well, who, who's this lady over here? Why isn't she with the other women tying these shocks or these sheaves together? And it's like, well, that's, that's Ruth. She's Naomi's daughter-in-law. And so then Boaz starts to put it together. Oh, okay, oh, okay, I, 
I've heard the story. Okay, I know. And then he instructs the men there, don't bother her. Remember, it's the time of judges. It's a violent, uncertain, crazy time. It says, don't bother her. Let her go about her work. And when the time came for everybody to kind of sit down and eat, he invited her to come and eat with him. Just so he could get to know her. I don't believe there's anything going on other than, I don't know you. You're in my field, so I'm going to get to know you. And she eats from his table, and she eats to her fill, and then what she doesn't eat, I can imagine she's trying to hide away in a napkin or something to bring home to Naomi. And then he's, she is told, says, you don't need to worry about gathering the edges or trying to pick up every little piece out of the field. You go amongst the women that are here. I've instructed the men not to bother you. You work amongst the women, and you gather up whatever to take home. And at the end of the day, after she gathered, then she threshed it all out. It's the equivalent of a little more than a five-gallon pail of barley. And I look at that, and I think, Why? you worked all day for a five-gallon pail or a little more of barley, but when you have nothing, that's significant. It's something to eat. Perhaps even enough to sell a little bit to gain some cash. And she comes home with this, and Naomi, well, where have you been? What did you find? Oh, my goodness, where did you go? Who did you rob? Well, nobody. I just I, I was out there in the field, and then I happened to see people working, so I moved to that one. It turns out it's the field of Boaz, and he was so kind to me. And then the sly old lady Naomi. She's like, Boaz? Well, he's some relation to my late husband. In fact, he's a goel, a kinsman redeemer. He's in the line of the family whose responsibility it is to care for the widow or the orphan. It's like, it's good that you're there. Wherever he goes, wherever his workers go, you just keep going there. And so throughout harvest, she followed them from field to field, place to place. And when the harvest was completed... And as the last of the threshing is being done, Ruth comes home and Naomi tells her, says, now listen to an old woman. Hear me out and do exactly what I say. Boaz is going to be down at the threshing floor tonight. And it's the time of judges. You know, you don't leave anything out unless you want it to walk away. He says he's going to be guarding his crop. He's going to be guarding what's his. He says, you go over there, and after supper is done, and everything, everybody's bedding down where they're going to go, you watch where he lays down. And after he goes to sleep, you go over there, and you uncover his feet, and then you lay there. And then you wait for him to tell you what to do. First things first here, there's a lot of modern or more liberal biblical scholars 
who want to make this sexually provocative. It is not. This was an act of submission. It was Ruth telling Boaz by her actions that I am your servant. And what you ask me to do, I will do. And some, at some point in the night, Boaz wakes up and realizes my feet are cold and there's somebody down there. And when he figures out what it is, and I know Ruth isn't sleeping, <laughs> says, who's there? What's going on? She says, well, I am Ruth. You are my kinsman redeemer. And I'm your humble servant. And what she is doing and saying that, what she is communicating is, I want you to marry me. It's bold, but it's not out of line. You see, the kinsman redeemer was responsible for four things in Israel. It wasn't really, it was, a, it was more tradition than absolute law laid out by God himself through Moses. But the kinsman redeemer was there to protect the family. And not just the immediate family, but the extended family. And the kinsman redeemer was called upon to buy or redeem back family or fellow Israelites that have been sold into slavery. Now maybe an individual was taken slave in battle and the kinsman and redeemer is his responsibility to redeem them, to buy them back. Perhaps an individual found themselves in dire straits, they were deep in debt and so then either they were taken as a slave to repay the debt or they sold themselves into slavery to pay the debt but after some amount of time then the, the kinsman redeemer would buy that fellow Israelite or family member back out of slavery. The kinsman redeemer was to be the avenger of innocent blood. My brother or my sister is killed. They're robbed, they're killed. Something bad happens to them out of anger or bad intention. It's not an accident. It was on purpose. And as the nearest living relative, it was incumbent upon me to avenge their death, to hunt down the killers, and to deal justly with them. The kinsman redeemer was called upon to redeem or buy back family land. When Israel came in to the land of Canaan, the tribes were given their allotments, and then the families were given their inheritance is what it was called. The promised land, this is your land, this is your parcel, this is your, and it stays in the family. And should you fall upon hard times and you feel the need to sell it, the kinsman redeemer would be called upon to buy that back, to redeem that back, to keep it in the family. And finally, the kinsman redeemer was called upon to marry the childless widow in order to provide children because children were hope and security for the future. And we look at that and say, well, shoot, if I'm already married and then I've... 
I don't know how it all works. That was the expectation of the kinsman redeemer. And so as Ruth is there, says, you are my redeemer. It's your responsibility. She could have gone there demanding her rights, demanding that he fulfill his responsibility to the family. But she went submissively and quietly, boldly, but quietly. She says, I want to be your wife. I want you to be my redeemer. And Boaz looks at her and says, why me? I'm an old man. You could have your pick of the men of this area. Jewish tradition states that Boaz was 80 and Ruth was 40. I may disagree a little bit with Jewish tradition here. Seems like 80 is pretty old to be out there cutting and threshing and <laughs> barley the way they were doing it. Seems like 80 is pretty old to be laying out there to defend what's yours. <laughs> In my mind, I've always pictured Ruth around maybe the age of 25 and Boaz maybe pushing 50. In either case, there's a significant age gap and Boaz is flattered. He says, why me? He says, because you're my redeemer. So Boaz calls her and in Hebrew it's let me get this right. Ha-yil. And throughout the book of Judges, ha-yil is used to describe mighty men of valor, mighty warriors. And in doing so, Boaz recognizes in Ruth that she's a mighty woman of valor. She's a woman of virtue, Worthy of being not just his wife, but any honorable man's wife. He says, I'll tell you what, you go home, don't let anybody see you, let me work this thing out. There's one closer than I. There's one closer to your father-in-law who's next in line to be kinsman redeemer. I have to go through him. If he refuses, I will take you up on this. And in doing so, since he didn't have a box of chocolates as a gift to send her home with, he measures out some more barley. The scripture says six ephahs of barley. Well, that'd be the equivalent of like six five-gallon pails. Ain't nobody carrying that back. Um, it's, it was probably he scooped up six handfuls and put them in something for her to bring back home as a gift, as a token, or as whatever, because he didn't have chocolate. I don't know. So Ruth goes home, and there's Naomi, who hasn't slept. What's going to happen? What's going on? What happened? Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. So Ruth tells her exactly what happened. And she goes, just sit tight and relax. <laughs> He's going to take care of this today, trust me. And that morning, Boaz gets up and he goes to the city gates 
And that's kind of a, oh, a cross between people's court and your town council. That's where decisions are made. That's where disputes are settled. That's where contracts are notarized. And he shows up there and he's sitting with the elders and perhaps, in all reality, Boaz is one of the elders of Bethlehem. As he's sitting there, he sees the other individual, the nearest kinsman redeemer come along. And this is, I find this so funny. Because in the Hebrew, the most literal translation of Boaz's greeting is, hey, 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 Mr. So-and-so. He's not even called by name. Hey, that's old such and such. Mr. So-and-so, come here. I got something to talk to you about. And so the guy comes over, and they would have known each other. They probably grew up together. They're, they're at least cousins, maybe even brothers. But he sits down and says, hey, you've, you've heard Naomi's back in town, right? Yeah, 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 I've heard. I, I, I spoke with her. I know the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when they left, that piece of ground got sold to whoever and as nearest redeemer, um, you're first in line to, to, to buy that land back, to redeem that land back into the family name. Are you interested in that? Well, why wouldn't I be? Times are better. We've grown good crops. It's more income. Absolutely, I want that piece of land. I will buy that back. I will take on that responsibility as kinsman redeemer. Very good, very good. I just wanted, if you weren't interested, then I, th I was thinking maybe I would try to take that on, but nope, no problem. That's your deal. Good for you. All right. As he turns to walk into the city, he's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. one more thing. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, is here also. You know that Moabite woman? Um, in order to buy the land, you also have to marry her. What? I'm already married. My inheritance is already settled. I don't need that kind of trouble. I'm not bringing another wife home. I'm not going to stir up problem with my sons. Because now if we have, it's my duty as kinsman redeemer to have children with her so that she can be provided for. That means I'm going to have to split my inheritance another way and then my kids will be upset. And mm, No, nah, I'm not interested. So Boaz says, well, let's formalize this thing then. And so they formalize. He, he makes in front of the witnesses, he's like, I am deferring or foregoing my responsibilities as nearest kinsman redeemer. I want no part of this. I give up my rights to this. And Boaz says, I will take it on. I will marry Ruth. And in front of the witnesses that gathered there, he announces the upcoming wedding. And I'm imagining that this took place fairly quickly. It wasn't eight months down the road when they could get the right hall in Bethlehem to host the reception. It came together quick. And everybody was excited. For one, Boaz was known as a man of honor. 
His kindness and generosity were known and appreciated, and they were happy for him. They had seen how Ruth conducted herself, how she treated Naomi, a much-loved member of the community, and they were happy for her. And they were married, and it says they had a child, and they named that child Obed, and they took Naomi into their home to serve as the nurse, the caregiver for this little one. And you can imagine Naomi, this old lady who had long ago given up hope of grandchildren, holding and kissing and loving on this baby Obed. But that's not the end of the story. Because Obed grew to manhood, and he married, and he had a son named Jesse. And the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, Jesse, grew to manhood, married, had many sons, the youngest of whom was named David, who became the king in Israel, whose family line became that of the Messiah. There's any number of things, and to be perfectly honest, I wish I had three weeks or four weeks to teach, preach through the book of Ruth. There is so much here. But you can do that. One of the good places to start would be the Enduring Word Commentary. You can get that online. I think it's David Gutzik. And I'm not saying he's the perfect Bible expositor, but he's pretty good. Helping you understand what all's in here. But there are three things. Over the last two weeks, as I've been reading and rereading and reading, there are three things that just keep coming back to me over, and I can't get them out of my head. And so you get them as points of application this morning. One is this, and these aren't anything unique to Ruth by any means. But the first is this, poor choices tend to lead to poor choices. Israel had been promised by God that if you obey and follow me, you forsake the idols, I will bless you and you will multiply and you will experience great wealth and blessing Your crops won't fail, the rains will come, and you will never have open animals in the spring. And yet we see that they live in a time, they move out in a time of famine, meaning that individuals had begun to compromise and fall away. And as individuals fell away and made poor choices, families fell away and made poor choices. And as families, then the clans and the tribes until the nation was compromising and falling away and God's judgment was coming upon them. And in the time of famine, it leads Naomi and Elimelech to leave the house of bread for the wilderness, to go back east. Away from God. And as they're there, 
I don't necessarily call it God's judgment or punishment that the, that the men of the family all died. Life happens. But poor choices continue to be made until finally the one day Naomi says no more. And she makes the choice, the good choice to return home. God is working there. I want to be where God is moving and working. She makes a good choice. And just as poor choices lead to poor choices, good choices have the tendency to lead to more good choices. And she returns home, and you see how God blesses in their lives as good and better choices are made. Second thing that I see in this story, this true story, is that kindness and generosity are never overlooked by our Creator. The Lord our God does not dismiss or take lightly our kindness and generosity. He called upon his people in the Old Testament to be kind and generous. It's why Boaz was leaving. They were called upon to leave the edges. Don't harvest to the edge of the field. You leave some of that for the poor and the needy and those who are in dire straits so that they don't have to beg. And we see that Boaz did more than what was expected of him. He was kind and generous, but we see it throughout. We see the kindness and generosity of Naomi because her daughters-in-law want to stay with her. It wouldn't be the case if she hadn't been kind and generous and gentle with them. And that kindness and generosity is rewarded in the loyalty of Ruth. And when they get back, we see the kindness and generosity of Ruth and her decisions pay off and are not overlooked because the people around, she's not just, oh, she's that Moabite woman. No, look how she cares for and loves Naomi. And people take notice of that. It becomes the defining qualities of her life. Uh, it's not just the Moabite. She's kind and she's generous. We see kindness and generosity of Boaz rewarded with a wife and family. And a lineage, a family line that he could have never dared imagine. Kindness and generosity are to be marks of the follower of Jesus. Kindness and generosity reflect the character of our living God and his son. Kindness and generosity should mark our lives in ever-increasing measure. And in scriptures, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean I work for my salvation. It means that I evaluate my life, that I step back and I carefully evaluate where I am at and what I'm doing. And if my life is not marked by kindness and generosity, am I really a follower of Jesus? Am I really indwelled by his spirit? 
Have I really been sealed for his service if these aren't marks of my life? Am I kind and generous to those who have no way to reciprocate that kindness and generosity? Kindness and generosity to the one that may repay me in spades is not really kindness and generosity. That might just be manipulation. But kindness and generosity to those from whom I have no hope of receiving kindness or generosity back, that marks the life of the Christ follower. And the Lord has promised to reward us for our good works. Our good works don't get us into heaven. But the Lord is noticing and there is treasure being set aside for the good things that we do here on earth as a follower of Jesus. Poor choices lead to poor choices. We see that. Good choices lead to good choices. We see that. We choose to live as kind and generous individuals. It's rewarded. And when we make good choices, when we live kind and generous lives, It leads us to a place where we refuse to live as a victim. I see this in the story of Ruth. It would have been very easy for Naomi to be bitter and angry and my whole life stinks because my family is all gone. And I'm justified in my bitterness and I'm justified in my anger and you don't know how I've lived through if you did, then you would understand why I'm so angry. If you did, you'd understand why I'm so bitter. If you did, and she refused to be a victim. And I know that there are some of us here, your childhood was miserable. And as a follower of Jesus, I stand here today on the authority of God's word to say that's not what defines you. The poor choices of your youth. Maybe as a kid you can't help the garbage that was heaped upon you, but then you made poor choices and made life more difficult when you were young, and that's not what defines you as a follower of Christ. We are not victims. In Romans chapter 8, we see... And we see throughout Scripture what takes place when we are followers of Christ and, and what, how our identity changes. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. We are new creation. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul writes and he says, What shall we say then to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We're not victims. God is for us. And then he follows that up in verses 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We aren't victims of our past. We are more than conquerors because Jesus has already won. The outcome has already been secured. 
And I read this verse, and throughout my life, I've looked at it, and it's like, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? If we won, we won. But to be more than a conqueror means that the outcome was never in doubt. The victory was so complete that there was no doubt. And we all love a Cinderella story, right? The sports team that struggles all year, all year, all year, and all of a sudden it gets to the po- they just barely get into the playoffs or the postseason, and somehow everything falls into place, and they end up by hook or by crook or by whatever, winning the championship. And we all celebrate, if you're old enough, you remember Jimmy Valvano running around NC State beating, was that Georgetown? Do you remember, Brian? You're old enough to remember. 1985, 84. I'm barely old enough to remember. 85. And we, we think that's great. And we celebrate them, but that's not what being more than a conqueror is. Being more than a conqueror is like the Dallas Cowboys of the 90s that I love to hate. Being more than conquerors would be like the 95 Nebraska football team. When from minute one to minute 60 of that football game, there was no doubt who was going to win it all season long. It's like Alabama the last few years. Yuck! They're more than conquerors. The outcome's never in doubt. It's just like, how big are we going to win? We aren't victims. We are more than conquerors. The outcome's already been secured. The opponent, the enemy, has never had a chance. From the time we humbled ourselves before our Creator and repented and turned our lives and our hearts over to his son Jesus. The enemy has never had a chance. And so this week, I encourage you, you got that much from the book of Ruth this morning. Four chapters, an easy read. Encourage you to dig in, to read through and see what it is that you yourself can glean from it. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.